I'm Kate Daniels, here with Dr. Jim DeMaine this morning to discuss death and dying. This is so critical to talk about because it really makes our life better. Dr. DeMaine knows this and so has written a book on the subject, Facing Death, and he joins us to share some insights and encouragement. Dr. Jim DeMaine, good morning. I am so grateful that you are here to join us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate that you are doing the work that you're doing. So you are a retired physician, although can you really call yourself retired? Because here you are, you've written this book, you're giving talks, uh, you have your blog site, so you're doing extra writing that way. So are you really retired? Um, my wife says I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I do enjoy uh trying to keep up a little bit in my own field, although I can't keep up completely in pulmonary and critical care medicine. But I've found that I'm a resource of information for friends and family, and I got uh, involved in uh, chairing a health care committee in the community I live in. And a lot of friends just ask me questions. I, I try not to uh, give direct advice, but I will go back to the literature and get them some articles and try to steer them toward people that uh, are doctors that they can work with. So kind of being an advocate and a resource and, and teacher, um, root word of doctor means to teach. So I think that's something that I really enjoy the most. Well, with this writing that you're doing now, teacher sounds really to be a strong element here. So the book I'm holding is Facing Death, Finding Dignity, Hope, and Healing at the End, which feels both powerful and empowering. And so this is a, a lot of the work that you are doing right now, and it couldn't be more beneficial, well, I guess really to all of us, correct? Well, I think um, thinking about this is something we don't normally do. Uh, there was uh, a writer that said that he always believed in death, but was hoping an exception would be made in his case. Uh, but I, I think I think denial is is healthy in a sense as we go about our day to day life. But um, I think with the pandemic upon us, and as we age, uh, we begin to experience loss of, of parents or loved ones. And um, so periodically, we need to think about our own mortality. And uh, in, in the book, I basically, it's a book of stories from my practice over some almost 40 years of patients I cared for. And I, the stories kind of have a little lesson for us to think about. It's, it's not a prescription of how to die or anything like that, but it's a description of, of the kinds of thinking about mortality that that um, that is going to happen, the inevitable will happen. But uh, I think what we all hope for is uh, having a good death. And uh, you know, I was interviewed several years ago by Katie Sewell and KOW, and she asked me what a good death was, and I had to think about that, and I've pondered over the years, but I think it really means dying the way that, uh, in a way that our 
our, our hopes and our fears are really addressed and that what really matters most to us is paid attention to. And of course, people want to be surrounded by loved ones and uh, have uh, a home or home-like environment and have a chance to say their goodbyes and, and to make peace. Uh, and those are the descriptions that people have given to me over the years. But most people want to just want to make sure that people are listening and that um, whatever their hopes or fears are, are going to be addressed. And my my thinking along those lines has been like, we never know that we have tomorrow. So that's not to be morbid or pessimistic, but just that's the reality. We don't know that we have beyond this moment even. And to really then be thinking of of doing and being all that we want to be and have in the moment. Yeah, it's, um, I think, just wise to periodically um, think about it. And probably the, the best way to approach it is, is to just start to have a conversation with loved ones. And, and this can be hard to do. Um, I, I attended a conference one time, and a medical writer was there talking about care around the world. And I, I asked him if he ever thought about writing a book about death and dying and, and whether he had discussed that with his family. And he said, oh, no, I can't go there. My, my kids won't even let me talk about it. So I, I think a lot of us put it off. Uh, there's an author, Ellen Goodman, who won a Pulitzer Prize, who mother did not have uh, a good death, and she regretted not having conversations with her. And so she started a, a project called the Conversation Project. Uh, if you just Google that, that, that will come up, and it's mentioned in the book that talks about how to start having conversations with your loved ones and uh, try to... Uh, determine what your values are, what's really most important to you, what your biggest hopes and fears are, what treatments would be acceptable or what wouldn't be acceptable. You know, particularly as we age and become more frail, uh, a lot of us will say, well, there's certain treatments we just wouldn't want to have. Uh, particularly, people become very elderly and very frail. Most would say they don't want to have a ventilator or CPR. Um, so th those are very, very important questions to be able to bring up um, with with our parents or with our spouses, uh, because otherwise we're going to have to do what we call substituted decision-making. I, I would be at the bedside with somebody critically ill, and I would turn to the spouse or the power of attorney or children and say, you know, what would mom want here? Would she want to really keep going, even though she has advanced cancer and is on a ventilator? What would she be telling us? And that's always a very difficult situation if the conversation has never been had. So that's that's kind of where we need to start. What I found to be helpful in terms of that was when my elderly mother 
was moving into a retirement home, and they had the requirement to fill out paperwork as to what your desires were, what her desires were in terms of that, which then led my brother and myself to sit with her and discuss what she wanted, and then we had it in writing. So in that way, these retirement residences really do a, a very good service. Yeah, they they do, and I think uh, there's a number of organizations that are really promoting that. Uh, here in uh, Seattle, we have a, a variety of organizations from End of Life Washington, which puts on courses. Uh, we have Honoring Choices Pacific Northwest, which is uh, sponsored by the Washington State Medical Association, Washington Hospital Association, and they do a lot of educational events about advanced care planning. Of course, Kaiser does. I know Virginia Mason has courses. Um, and uh, uh, People's Memorial, uh, the funeral co-op also does courses called Getting Your Ducks in a Row. So it's a very active community uh, in trying to get that done. And now Medicare does allow um, a visit for you to do advanced care planning with your family doctor. And, of course, if you get admitted to a hospital now, too, you're asked at least if you have advanced directives, and they will try to promote that. But it is good that uh, that retirement communities and nursing homes uh, have a strong encouragement to uh, fill out the paperwork. In fact, where I live, somewhat at my urging, I've, I've got it more standardized uh, that everybody here, and we're in independent living, but everybody here is uh, encouraged to have their paperwork filled out. Of course, it can't be required. You can encourage it. Uh, and then we put that in a hanging file on the inside of the kitchen sink door because nobody wants to look at their forms every day. You just want to know that they're there. So if 911 is called, it's standardized for the whole facility that they know where to look for the forms. And the one that for the very senior uh, people that really don't want any heroic intervention, uh, there's a, a thing called the Physician Orders for Life-Sustaining Treatment. It's a, called the PULST form. It's a bright green form, which I call the 911 form. And this form allows kind of three general choices. One is do everything, of course, that that would be the normal practice um, in the community that people will do everything to keep you going. But you can make a choice to have uh, no CPR, or you can say, I would take a ventilator for a short period of time. And then there's an intermediate choice where you can say, well, I would want some um, specific medical care. I might take an antibiotic or be willing to go to the hospital, but I wouldn't want more heroic measures. And then for people on hospice that have this kind of form, generally the form would say just comfort care. And this is uh, this has been a wonderful adaptation in medicine uh, as we get toward the end of our life. We do have now um, very good hospice uh, facilities in the state of Washington. And through the uh, University of Washington, we have more and more palliative care physicians trained uh, that can help us and, and give us a, that kind of comfort care. Um, and generally when you select comfort care, it means that that uh, you would not want to go to a hospital. You would want to be 
treated with the best care for comfort at home. I would always get mad at physicians when they would tell a patient, there's nothing more I can do for you because there's always more we can do. You know, we should be able to treat their whatever symptoms they have, where it's a, whether it's an emotional crisis or whether it's pain or whether it's shortness of breath. You know, all those things are, are critical, particularly as we approach the end of life. And that, when I read that, I appreciated that so much because you're, yes, there's always more and it is the step of providing comfort care and making those last days or hours, whatever it is, be comfortable. Because to me, the concern is being in pain and distress and it's just so unsettling, both, of course, for the person first, but for family that's around. Yes, I, I think uh, being free of pain, and we have you know, very good pain management uh, available now. If somebody is suffering in the hospital or has very confusing situation with multiple specialists involved, they can request a palliative care consultation. And these are physicians that's kind of like advanced internal medicine. They'll go in and look at the whole picture, um, in, in a holistic fashion, not just uh, based on your lungs or your heart or your kidneys. They look at the, at the big picture. And there can be spiritual suffering, emotional suffering, physical suffering, and they, they address all these levels, and uh, uh, they help to coordinate the specialty team and, and bridge communication with the family and loved ones. So you know, this is what we all deserve. Harborview, uh, UW and Harborview have a wonderful um, palliative care center for excellence, and uh, they're training more and more physicians. They can work with hospice physicians to help them, but you don't have to be in hospice to have access to palliative care. Um, these didn't exist when I started in medicine. It, it was so different when I trained in medicine back in the 1960s. Um, you know, we didn't have we didn't have any of the heroics of life support, but we also didn't have hospice. We would ne never even mention cancer to a patient. We would always whisper it to a family member. So we've come from a very paternalistic uh, approach to patient care to a much more um, what we call shared decision-making and holistic approach. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of criticism of the healthcare system, but it, it, it certainly... Um, uh, has, has made some significant advances. And to help us along as we look at uh, end of life, we're looking. We're thinking probably elderly, but it can happen at any time if we have a a serious health condition such as uh, like a stage four cancer. What is it that we want to have happen? And with your book, facing death, finding dignity, hope, and healing at the end. I feel you're giving us another tool. These stories help us to kind of navigate through uh, other people's experiences and find what is going to be the fit for us. Yeah, it's uh, we we don't know what's going to happen to us. You know, we don't uh, know, and it's probably good we don't know. And so we're going to have to adapt to whatever happens. I mean, sometimes it's very sad, like with a genetic condition like cystic fibrosis, where I would, you know, lose kids just graduating from high school or, or 
bit younger, a bit older. Um, that's tremendous stress on the on the family and on the individual. But some of these individuals are heroic in their own light. You know, I had one 19-year-old girl that had just about every complication of cystic fibrosis and trouble breathing, recurrent respiratory infections, despite really good management. And I had her seen over at the adult cystic fibrosis clinic at the University of Washington. But she, her, her goal in life was to go to her senior prom. I mean, that's how limited the goals can become. And she, uh, her mother really had stuck with her. It was so hard on the parents' marriage that it, it split up in a divorce. The father just couldn't deal with it. But the mother, you know, joined the CF Foundation and support groups and really helped this girl along to try to achieve the things that she wanted. Um, and uh, the girl's goal was to, to get to this senior prom, even though she was not doing well. The mother supported the risk. And often we we are willing to take those risks, even though we know that it might limit our life. And she did go to the prom, um, became very ill immediately after, a few days after, and went into respiratory address, uh, arrest. And 911 was called, and she was placed on a ventilator, um, eventually brought under my care at our hospital. And it was um, such a difficult time. Um, my colleague from the university came over, and we did meet with the family, and uh, particularly the mother and sister. Uh, the sister did not have cystic fibrosis, and you know it's going to be this uh, girl's birthday uh, on Saturday, um, and uh, you know we knew that she would never get off a respirator, so we were talking to the mom about you know, giving enough morphine to make her comfortable and, and removing the ventilator support. And it was just very difficult. But we, her mom wanted to keep her going through her birthday and, and not take her off the ventilator until the next day. And So the, the nurses were so caring. Uh, you know, we, we turned off the monitors uh, on the next day and gave her enough morphine to, to really put her... Um, pretty well out um, and make her very comfortable and then remove the tube from her throat uh, and so the family could come back in and be with her in her last moments. But those kind of things, you know, you, you, you can't prepare for. The mother could never have prepared for that kind of thing. But you see, you see resilience. Uh, people sometimes would contact me years after they lost a spouse and would tell me that sometimes they call them to thank me that, you know, their kids were doing well and graduated from college. And then one woman kind of, this was about five or six years after the death of her husband from a heart attack, called me and said, you know, life does go on. I'm in a new relationship and I've never been so happy in, in, in years. So we, we, we do survive. We're all going to lose people uh, in, in life, and ultimately we're all going to have a last breath. Um, but somehow or other, we, we have adapted. We have more adaptive skills to these things than, than we know about until we, until we really go through it.
And I think certainly living through this COVID time, we are faced with this even much more strongly. So we, I feel we should be taking this opportunity to, to really stare death, I guess, in the face and, and think about our mortality. It's going to happen. I mean, no, except for that one author who thought he might get away with not. <laughs> um, it's, it's 100% guarantee. Yeah, the the COVID epidemic has kind of blindsided all of us. I, I think we're we read about death in the paper every day. Uh, we know it's mostly older people, certainly not all, um, but it's tragic to so many families. And, and so I I think we just have we're having more time to contemplate uh, mortality, and and uh, unfortunately, it's. Uh, I think we're going to be in for a pretty tough winter with cases currently rising in the in the um, King County area anyway, and uh, I think that it's very sad. Uh, I've had contacts from um, pe- people I've worked with in the in the black community about how sad they are that they've lost so many friends and colleagues. So it's it's disproportionately affected the uh, Latinx and, and Black communities, um, and uh, also you know it, it's it's affecting seniors uh, and all of us because we're kind of all shut down and we have less contact with others. I think we're we're more isolated. There's been some mental deterioration, but you know. In, in an odd way, I'm optimistic uh, about the future. I think we will get through this. I think by mid next year, anyway, hopefully there'll be a vaccine underway. So I, I think you know, my own opinion is if we can have the, the leadership to help us get through this and to, to buoy up our spirits and to look forward, um, I think um, – We'll be writing a lot about what's going on, but it is a difficult time now. And uh, I, I've seen mental deterioration uh, in some of the seniors that are, are so isolated. We've got to protect their health, but it's, it's still it's it's very hard under mental health. Yes, it definitely has huge challenges there, which makes me think about in facing death you have this wonderful appendix where you have a list of all these different forms different websites and one in particular that caught my attention is that there's a dementia directive which right. uh, I thought well isn't that incredible so to you know at least have that in place sounds like a really humane gift for ourselves yeah, there's one that has been developed by Dr. Barack Gassner at the University of Washington. In fact, he just read my book and put a comment on Amazon, which I'm flattered that he would do that. Yeah, he developed uh, with a team a dementia directive. If you just Google dementia directive, you'll find it. And it kind of gives you choices of what level of care you would want, depending on the level of dementia you have. You know, if you have mild dementia, you might have these choices, or if you have very advanced dementia, you have other choices. 
I do relate an episode in the book of a woman that came up to me after one of my talks and said, I just don't know what to do. My husband signed these papers years ago that he would want everything done, full life support, ventilator and everything. But now he has advanced dementia and he doesn't even recognize me anymore. But he, but he signed these papers that he would still want CPR and a ventilator. And I said, well, you know, doctors don't want to do harm. I'm not sure they would necessarily offer the CPR and ventilator. But uh, do you think your husband would benefit from that? And she said, no, I, I really don't think he would. But he signed these papers, and I'm, I'm really torn as to what to do. So, you know, I advised her to meet with her pastor and social worker and others, but I think she really felt stuck in terms of honor, honoring her husband. But I did talk to a healthcare lawyer about that, and she she raised the, the idea that her husband and his dementia had essentially become a different person. Mm. And should those directives necessarily be carved in stone when they really don't make sense anymore. And she talked about substituted judgment by the advocate uh, by allowing her to have that. And, you know, that could get you into a lawsuit or other legal stress situation. But most of the time, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Most of the time, common sense will prevail. The the End of Life Washington, um, formerly Compassion and Choices, uh, does have a what I call a very extensive dementia directive uh, that was drawn up by a lawyer that's like 11 pages long, but it goes into all these nuances. If I become a different person, would I want this or that level of care? Um, there, there's a, some very practical things that need to be considered in dementia. There, there was an internist in town years ago that surveyed uh, th- doctors about whether they would use an antibiotic or not for a patient that had been in a nursing home with advanced dementia uh, for, for four years, did not recognize family anymore, and uh, all basically was in kind of a vegetative state. And he said, if you were called at night and this patient had 104 fever and the blood pressure was falling, pretty obviously a kidney infection that had spread into the bloodstream, would you or would you not give an antibiotic? And 80% of the doctors said, if I know the patient well and comfortable with the family dynamics, I would not give an antibiotic. In other words, there is a time when we need to let go, and, and sometimes that means doing less rather than doing more. So dementia is difficult. Even the idea of feeding in dementia, if somebody is not requesting food with very advanced dementia, are we always obligated to offer food? And that's kind of one of the hot buttons right now and among the ethicists, because it could be abuse if you don't offer food. But if the person isn't requesting and they have very advanced dementia, what what do you do? So... So these are the kinds of questions we have to grapple with and just look at it and think about it, not have to get depressed about it, because it's how we view it that can be actually life-giving and empowering to us. Yeah, I I did not ever get 
you know, overwhelmed by these questions because there's something that fascinates me about ethics. You know, we, we have these ethical principles in our society that apply very directly to healthcare, and very revered is our autonomy. You know, we, we have a right to decide for ourselves what is done to our own body. I mean, nobody can force a treatment on us. You know, nobody can force surgery or do things to our bodies that are against our will. And this is where the autonomy comes in, the right of an individual to decide. But there's also the ethical principle of do no harm. And sometimes you know, doctors are very reluctant to do something, even though a patient might want it, if they think it's very likely to be harmful. So, and another ethical principle is, is called beneficence, which really means it's kind of paternalistic. That the, the doctor will do what he thinks or he or she thinks is best. Uh, and those principles sometimes conflict with each other, and there's a natural tension. Well, these stories are so vital to us, and you are so great at relating them to us this morning, but certainly we can find many of the stories in your book, Facing Death. And let's also mention that you have a town hall coming up where you'll be, again, uh, sharing different stories, no doubt, or more of some of these and just nuanced. And that's happening on Monday, November 16th, correct? That's correct. Yeah, it's 730, I believe. Do we access it through your website or is it a town hall website? Uh, actually, I'll I'll put it uh, on my Twitter account and on, on my blog, but it is already listed on town hall website for November 16th, and the, the link will be up there for sure. So excellent. Well, we could keep on talking, and it is a worthy subject for that, but today our time is, is wrapped up, so I Once again, just simply thank you for your great work, your dedication, and taking time with us this morning, Dr. Demain. Thanks, Kate. I very much enjoyed it.